Prospect Lives. Seven Voices on Modern Britain. We British are not very good at hospitality. I recently found myself under heavy questioning about my screen time. I've recently been feeling more like a teenager than I felt as an actual teenager. Mindfulness taught me that I didn't need solutions to be okay. There's no point being the richest person in the graveyard. When you're part of a hierarchical church, you can't ignore your bishop even when you'd like to. Welcome to Prospect Lives, a chronicle of disparate experiences of modern Britain by a family of regular Prospect writers, filling us in on what they're thinking about each month. We left our seven writers in June. Writer and sex worker Tilly Lawless was celebrating the power of role play, while farmer Tom Martin asked why everyone's so obsessed with what time he wakes up. Sports journalist Emma John was cheering on the England netball team and their drive for more research about the female body, while Sarah Collins, who suffers with OCD, was calling for a more honest conversation about premenstrual mental health. This month, former England cricket captain Mike Brealey reflects on the several years in his 20s when he took a break from cricket, while Anglican priest Alice Goodman nervously awaits the selection of a new bishop for her parish. Meanwhile, Gen Zia Alice Garnett muses on whether 23 is the most difficult age, and farmer Tom Martin discovers that he spends more than five hours per day on his phone. But let's begin with actor and writer Sheila Hancock, who asks why we British are so bad at hospitality. It is over. My home in France has gone along with my geographically European life. For 30 years, I have divided my time equally between France and the UK. Now, the completion of the sale of my French house has diminished my existence. The Louvron, with its sunflowers and lavender, will no longer be my joy and solace. So, mindful of my mother's constant advice to make the best of a bad job, I must learn to relish the English side of my remaining years. I have decided to explore the joys of Great Britain more thoroughly. As it happens, my European amputation has coincided with the ritual of a tour to publicise the paperback of my book, Old Rage, a perfect opportunity to bask in the beauty of my homeland. It has been somewhat blighted by the realisation that we British are not very good at hospitality. That is a subject I know something about. My childhood was spent living in pubs and hotels where my father worked. He was a great landlord, until perhaps a little too apt to respond affably to his customers' offers of have one on me, Rick, he reluctantly took a job in a factory instead. But happily, my parents retired to live in a caravan park that had a clubhouse. In no time, Dad was behind its bar, turning it into a riotous, happy place. He died of a coronary after demonstrating his high kicks to the enchanted customers. I have not found similar warmth and fun on my book tour. Some of our big hotels seem to have evolved rigid rules that leave no space for initiative. 
A TV company booked me for bed and breakfast in a big hotel in Cardiff. When I asked if I could have breakfast in my room, reception said I would have to pay for it. No, it's already paid for by the company, I said. But if you have it in your room, you have to pay for it. But then it would have been paid for twice. Sorry, that's the rule. Well, okay, I will pay. Can I have it at 7am? We don't start serving till 7.30. But I have to go to work early. Can't you sneak me up a coffee and croissant? Sorry, no, it's not allowed. Cut to a hotel in Manchester. I arrived late after a show and needed sustenance. There was no welcome book listing contact numbers and all the lovely hotel services. So how to find another human? I felt marooned on a Mancunian island. Eventually, I gathered everything was on the television screen. I managed to order a cheese toasty and a glass of red wine from the room service menu. Eventually, a young student, working to augment his university loan, brought me the red wine that I had ordered, which I guzzled in relief. The toasty came some time later with a white wine that I didn't order, but I downed that as well. The young man and I had a lovely chat. He left and I got undressed and into bed. At five minutes past midnight, there was a banging on my door. Imagining a fire, I leapt to open it to be confronted by another sheepish student, this time with a card machine demanding money for my room service food. He agreed that it was unlikely a sleepy, half-pissed old lady was planning to do a nighttime flit to avoid paying for a fairly unpleasant toasty, but he had been told to come and get the money. Those rules again. I was supposed to have paid when I arrived. The hotels may be disappointing, but I am thoroughly enjoying the train journeys, especially now the railway banks are left to go wild. On the way to Leeds, on the unshorn sides that we passed, there was a cornucopia of foxgloves, poppies, Michaelmas daisies, wild roses and buddleia. I even enjoy the drama of the fields filled with solar panels, making use of unprepossessing roadside farmland and the elegant wind turbines that bedeck the landscape alongside pylons that must have been equally reviled when they first appeared. I love looking into people's homes as we pass. One small garden right next to the line was ablaze with flowers and at a table fitted onto the tiny, neatly manicured lawn, a man and woman were having a drink under a parasol as if they were in the south of France. So, the infinite variety of the English landscape, houses and people is there to explore. And then there are wonderful Wales, Scotland and Ireland nearby. There is so much I don't know about my homeland. I'm sad about France, but this is a new start, a new adventure. As John Donne exhorted us, it is an astonishment to be alive and it behoves you to be astonished. While Sheila's frustrated by the fact that many hotels rely on restrictive digital systems,
Farmer Tom Martin explains how he spends more than five hours per day on his phone. I recently found myself under heavy questioning about my screen time. It turns out that I spend an average of more than five hours a day looking at my phone according to the phone itself. The charge, how on earth does a farmer like me, supposedly out toiling in the elements, clock so many hours on a digital device? Constructing a defence for myself, my mind turned to a half-remembered interview I heard years ago. It was some explorer or other, a real Bear Grylls type, and he was asked what the most important piece of kit was. His response, and keep in mind that this was in the dim and distant pre-iPhone days, was his BlackBerry. He said it was the piece of equipment that enabled him to fundraise while training, to communicate with team members and to make the arrangements required to complete his arduous adventure. So it is for me, I grandly like to think. I have good reasons, dear reader, for my surprising relationship with my iPhone. First of all, I spend very little time at the computer, but do have a significant amount of admin to do, like updating forms and filling in records. Having left the European Union, we were supposedly going to be rid of so many forms, but even if we have escaped from some, many others seem to have taken their place. Now, this task could easily be done from my computer at home, but with hard shifts and long hours, my motivation often expires before the close of the working day. I find it easier to snatch any opportunity that I can on the job while refueling machinery, waiting on deliveries or performing light duties to multitask. New technology allows the tractor to drive itself in a straight line across our fields. At the touch of a button, I'm demoted from driver to conductor, from operator to passenger. And during this time, I'm aware of my surroundings in the field, but often also perform other duties. While the tractor drives itself, I can, with the assistance of Siri, make calls to order fertilisers, arrange visits, or even sell produce as I'm on the move. And given the length of most of our fields, I can also compose tweets. My former colleagues from the days before I returned to the family farm were always amazed when I tell them that farmers are all over Twitter. And with no shame whatsoever, I can tell you that more than 50% of the tips and tricks I learn about food production and agriculture come via Twitter. Social media makes up most of my screen time, but I can at least convince myself that some of this falls under the heading of R&D. And judging by some of the rows that farmers get into on there, it's certainly not R&R. The last category to consider is email. I receive an average of about 40 to 50 emails per day on my work address. There may be invitations to demonstrations or meetings, communication about products and orders, and once again, social interaction between farmers. While many people today are trying to preserve their work-life balance, to separate work from their social and home life, farming is such an all-consuming job that it is, I believe, essential for our mental health to maintain social connections during the long passages of otherwise really isolated work. I want to be interrupted by more friendly emails, and all this comes from my phone. So, with big chunks of my working day spent looking at my phone, my most impressive piece of kit isn't my satellite-guided tractor. Instead, it's in my pocket, or more likely, in my hand or on the dashboard mount. Both farmer Tom Martin and Gen Zer Alice Garnett seek inspiration on Twitter, as Alice explains the phenomenon of feeling like a, quotes, 20-something teenage girl, quotes. I'm 23, a third of the way through what is allegedly going to be the best decade of my life. So why do I, and the majority of the rest of my peers, feel so utterly and irredeemably fucked? 23 has felt like the freshest week of life. 
a hectic, messy, confusing period that has me reckoning with almost every aspect of my identity. Through living, working and dating in London, I'm constantly meeting new people and like the irritating 18-year-old fresher on campus, I'm far too eager to please, to be liked, to not come off as desperately lost. At the slightest inconvenience, I topple from my precarious pedestal as mature young adult and spiral into petulant teenagerdom. One moment I'm meal prepping an elaborate salad containing kale, almonds, lemon peel and other ingredients the average shop would be smug to have in their basket. The next moment I'm having my first shower in 48 hours, angrily listening to Taylor Swift's Mr Perfectly Fine because I've just seen that my ex is going on a lad's holiday to Italy, even though we broke up over a year ago. And I'm over him. I've recently been feeling more like a teenager than I felt as an actual teenager. At least between the ages of 13 and 19, I had a clear goal to work towards. GCSEs, A-levels, and then university. These days, I'm not so sure what I want. If the end goal is happiness, a nebulous and ever-changing concept that's far less quantifiable than an exam result, then I'm highly likely to get lost along the way. It is both exciting and terrifying looking at the vast stretch of time that I have ahead of me, not knowing what all the years I have left to live will entail. In fact, my sense of choice paralysis has been so acute that I went and got a fig tattooed on my body, inspired by Sylvia Plath's metaphor from The Bell Jar, where her protagonist imagines a different future, like a fat purple fig winking from every branch of a tree. I went on a run today, for the first time in over a year. As I re-entered the house feeling virtuous, I contemplated a total rebrand, a complete overhaul of my personality. Maybe I'm not meant to be a party girl. Maybe I'm a clean girl. I could replace pints with green smoothies, hash browns with granola, meaningless sex with mindfulness. I feel tired just thinking about all of the things I could or might one day be. I feel exhausted at the thought of all the things I would have to do and change about myself to become them. Plath's tragically premature end aside, I do take comfort in knowing that I'm not the first 23-year-old to suffer from the fig tree affliction. Every generation, regardless of the state of the world and the UK economy, has felt or will feel the stifling sense of indecision. And thanks to the internet and my generation's penchant for oversharing, we talk about Plath's plight more than ever. I've seen countless tweets and TikToks that reference being a 20-something teenage girl. Many of them relate to the workplace, with one semi-viral tweet saying, why are people asking me for my thoughts and opinions on things at work? I'm just a 27-year-old teenage girl. Translated, these tweets all echo the same sentiment. Although I am legally and biologically an adult, I feel as inexperienced and full of angst as a teenage girl. This seems particularly applicable to women aged between 22 and 24, when literally every aspect of your life feels in flux, and while adjusting to all of this immediate change, you're expected to make big decisions that will set you up on the right path towards success in the most heteronormative capitalist sense of the world. 
Logically and anecdotally, I understand that no one knows what they're doing, regardless of age. Adulthood is mostly just muddling through and hoping for the best. Whenever I vocalised my young adult angst to my dad, he said, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. So I'm trying my best to lean into the uncertainty, to allow my life to take me to wherever it is I'm supposed to be. Despite the horrifying state of the economy and global politics in general, I will try to have faith that things often work themselves out. Que sera, sera, and so on. In the meantime, all I can do is have fun, do good, and not sweat the small stuff. I'll consider the mistakes I make now, the late nights, vodka shots, and countless cigarettes, as seasoning for my still-cooking prefrontal cortex. When Sarah Collins, who suffers with obsessive-compulsive disorder, first encountered mindfulness at university, she thought it was mumbo-jumbo. Now she's evangelising about it to all her friends. Close your eyes and listen out for five different sounds you can hear. It is a rainy Sunday afternoon in June, and as we walk back to the station after a pub lunch at Beachy Head, I'm forcing my long-suffering friend Rebecca to try a mindfulness exercise. I can see from her face that Rebecca is not convinced. This does not deter me, and I make her try again. This time I ask her to notice five things that she can see. Rebecca is soaking wet. She forgot her raincoat. Rebecca is cold. We have a train to catch imminently. I have chosen the wrong moment to evangelise. My transformation from mindfulness sceptic to zealous convert surprised me as much as anyone else. When I first encountered the concept at university, when a class was advertised in my college, I was the stereotypical first-year student, hedonistic and cynical and convinced of the glamour of an existence fuelled by coffee, red wine and cheese toasties. And what's worse, anything remotely related to well-being, from eating vegetables to taking deep breaths, was a load of mumbo-jumbo crap that only arty southerners, a breed of people I'd recently been introduced to, would fall for. Five years later, it's 2019, and I'm sitting opposite an expert psychologist in OCD. She is instructing me to plant my feet firmly on the floor, to place my hands on my lap, and to focus on taking long, deep breaths. I am furious. I've been in the weeds for almost a decade, battling with the demon that has clawed great swathes of my life away from me, and all this so-called expert has to offer is souped-up gasping. My anger clearly shows on my face. Look, she says, I know this isn't going to solve all your problems, but can we give it a go? It didn't solve all my problems, but mindfulness taught me that I didn't need solutions to be okay. With OCD, the real issue is the excessive attention that we suffer as pay to our thoughts, the endless attempts that we make to untangle our problems. The psychologist introduced me to a scheme of therapy called Acceptance and Commitment, ACT for short, which uses applied mindfulness techniques to help patients to see their thoughts for what they are. According to ACT practitioners at least, random pieces of language rather than truths, commands or threats. Applied mindfulness doesn't involve sitting in a silent room meditating. Practicing it can be as simple as taking a walk around the park and, as I tried to impress upon my friend Rebecca, noticing five things you can see and hear. Box breathing, an exercise used by the US Navy SEALs for highly stressful situations, which I turn to in the face of any minor inconvenience, is as easy as breathing in for four counts, holding your breath for four counts, 
then breathing out for four counts on repeat. My hands-down favourite technique is musical thoughts, which comes courtesy of Russ Harris and his marvellous book, The Happiness Trap. You take a thought that is bothering you, perhaps an everyday self-criticism like, I'm incompetent, and sing it to yourself in your head. You don't try to alter or change the thought or to avoid it, you just play it to a tune. I find that anything by Stevie Wonder or Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons tends to work perfectly. These methods all serve to unhook me from the spirals of rumination that my mind demands I engage in, by gently pulling me back into the world around me, or reminding me to take my brain's chatter a little less seriously. I suspect that many of us are put off by mindfulness, because it is too often offered as a formal class or meditation that involves sitting in silence in one place. But that's not the only way to do it. Practical mindfulness skills I can do on the move have liberated me from the prison of obsessive thoughts. How could I not be desperate to share them with the people I love? And now it's time for me to get into the cold water swimming that those arty southerners have been doing for years. Former England cricket captain Mike Brealey reflects on how taking a break from the sport in his 20s, a freedom which many young athletes today don't enjoy, influenced his life and career. In my book, Turning Over the Pebbles, A Life in Cricket and in the Mind, I quote the American psychoanalyst Salman Akhtar's response to a question about whether a person who has been helped by treatment for his emotional difficulties could be indistinguishable from a person who never had them. Akhtar offered an analogy. Imagine, he says, two beautiful vases on a shelf. A wind gets up and blows one off. That vase cracks into pieces. It is carefully and skillfully put back together so that it looks almost identical to the one that didn't get blown off but has traces of cracks. This vase knows something that the other vase doesn't know. It knows what it is to go through difficulties and recover. I've often wondered whether the analogy applies to sports people like me who took time out from professional sport in order to pursue other things. Would I have been better at cricket had I not taken several years out in my twenties? Did cracks in my technique develop that needed repairing? Or did taking my path enable other strengths to emerge that would not have done so without this interruption? It's impossible to know, but perhaps there are things to be said. I signed up as a professional cricketer in July 1964, immediately after four years of playing for my university as an undergraduate. For the next 15 months, I continued as such. In the English winter between 1964 and 65, I was a young hopeful in the last tour organised by the Marylebone Cricket Club, the MCC, of apartheid South Africa. In 1965, age 23, I gave up this potential career and went back to Cambridge to start on a PhD. In 1966, I got a research assistant position at a branch of the University of California at Irvine in southern Los Angeles. In the middle of this academic year, I captained the MCC under-25s in Pakistan. I returned to Los Angeles via brief but memorable stays in India, Nepal, Cambodia, Hong Kong and Tokyo. In the following year, I was appointed lecturer in philosophy at the New 
at Newcastle University, where I taught for almost three years before resigning to take up an offer to return to cricket, this time to Captain Middlesex in 1971. I had played a few matches for Middlesex first and second teams over the previous five years, but only after the summer term, and I only put myself forward when it suited me. I'd also played half a season for Cambridgeshire, plus two part seasons for Percy Main in the Northumberland League. Looking back, I see I was quite casual about cricket at this time. It had felt like an agreeable hobby. On one occasion, for example, I went on holiday in Provence and Italy for two weeks or more. Returning on a Monday, I found a letter inviting me to play for Middlesex against Lancashire at Lord's two days later. I was to open the batting. I asked Mike Smith, my fellow opener, what Peter Lever and Ken Shuttleworth did with the ball. Not much swing, he said. The first ball from Lever swung away and beat my outside edge. The second took the outside edge. Mike said apologetically that you never know what these cunning fast bowlers will come up with next. Nowadays, promising schoolboy cricketers are invited to choose a full-time contract with a county at the age of 19 instead of getting a degree. A commitment to cricket rather than a flirtation. Alistair Cook, for one, decided against studying at Durham, signing for Essex. By the age of 21, he was playing for England. A cricketing generation earlier, Mike Atherton made the more traditional choice, studying at Cambridge. Like other sports, cricket has become radically more professional over the past 60 years. When I started, a number of talented sportsmen could divide their year into playing both cricket and football. Most famous were the Compton brothers, who played for Arsenal until late April and Middlesex for the next five months. This would not be possible now. In my youth, it was considered unnecessary, even pretentious, to earn a tracksuit or to do physical training. Now, early and ongoing specialisation has become de rigueur. Counties have academies for the young, they have more than one coach, professional players are on year-long rather than summer-only contracts. Every county has digital aids to technique. Every player has dietary and training disciplines. Players are more observed. There is a sense that team spirit requires constant bonding. In his famous book, Beyond the Boundary, C.L.R. James asks, alluding to a question posed by Rudyard Kipling, what do they know of cricket who only cricket know? There is much in this sentiment, but getting the balance right is not easy. On one side we risk narrow single-mindedness, on the other dilettantism. In my case, I was slow to develop a reliable batting technique. I never committed to a single coach or mentor, nor did I work sufficiently hard to remove flaws. For instance, it took me years to get out of an early habit of playing inside out, that is, the back going from leg side towards the offside, and I was rarely able to relax into a less tense, 
less stiff upper lip kind of courage, less stiff upper lip kind of courage against the best fast bowlers. Nor did I ever quite work out how to score against them, even if I could stay in. I never fully grasped the importance of transferring weight onto the front foot so that quicker bowlers would have to worry about being driven. On the other hand, CLR had a point. How much did I learn about teams from outside cricket? How much more comfortable did I become as a result of my life experience in other contexts? Did I come back to cricket fresher after my time away? Was I able, as a captain at least, to be more open to experimentation? I remember being told by the Middlesex chair of selectors that one player complained that I had put fielders in funny positions, but then admitted that, amazingly, the ball kept going to them. I don't regret my years out of cricket. I do regret not doing more about my technique. But I'm not sure I'd have managed it much better had I been a contracted cricketer for those formative years. Coming from financial disadvantage, sex worker and writer Tilly Lawless has always had a complicated relationship with money. But recently, her attitude has shifted. I'm used to instant gratification with money and to a direct correlation between the amount of labour that I put in and the money that I make. Fuck this many clients, walk away with this much cash. Immediately. I often decide on a purchase based on how many men it would equate to me screwing. Through years of brothel and parlour work, I've become used to the juggling and justifying of extras. If I have two more half-hour bookings, or if I have one 45-minute booking and do kissing, I'll hit my goal for the day. I keep a tally of what I can do with my body, how much more money I can make, how much time is left in a shift, a week, a month. I'm constantly preoccupied with how much money is out there, circulating, and feel guilt when I miss an opportunity to make some. I will beat myself up over picking the Tuesday shift when, apparently, Monday was the busy one. I have a scarcity mindset, and like a lot of people coming from financial disadvantage, I've often felt that money will somehow keep me safe. Hoarding it and watching it grow has reassured and calmed me. But sex work is so uncertain. I've done nine-hour brothel shifts and walked out with zero dollars because no clients picked me. But there have also been weeks where I've made $10,000. No wonder I haven't learned stability with that level of fluctuation. It's meant I've always felt as if I have to make money while it's there, in case it isn't there later. And I've tried to build a reserve to see me through the times when I'm not able to work, for whatever reason. Thrush, period cramps, debilitating mental health issues. It doesn't help that looming over me are the spectre of ageing out of the industry and the fact that sometimes there are more girls than clients to go around. It's hard to have faith, in that context, that the money is there to be made and will come back around. After 10 years of working, my relationship with money has started to shift. I finally feel that I'm beginning to loosen up and let go of the fear. Largely, that's because I've finally saved enough that I'm more than one bad month away from having nothing. Obviously, the easiest way to be unstressed about money is by having more money. There are other factors that play a part, though. My savings have enabled me to help my dad, who is in his 70s, to buy a home, something that hung over me through my 20s as he grew older and frailer. It has released me, in some way, because I had felt that I had a duty to him, but also because his age meant I felt the pressure of time, which I don't feel in the same way on my own behalf. 
Also, as I've written about before in this column, I recently lost a close friend who was also a sex worker and who had parallel life plans to my own. She had hustled hard since she was 17 and finally bought herself a house, only to kill herself a few months later. It made me realise that all the financial goals that I was striving for meant nothing. The things she achieved, which I found so aspirational, hadn't brought her happiness. What is this mirage that I stretched for? I had turned down so much spare time that I could have spent with her in order to work. What was I working so hard for? There's no point being the richest person in the graveyard. For Anglican priest Alice Goodman, the announcement that Stephen Conway, the Bishop of Ely, is moving to Lincoln means a nervous wait to find out who will replace him. My first experience of bishops was my mother yelling at one of them over the phone. He was the Episcopal Bishop of Minnesota, and I went to an Episcopalian high school, where the headmaster had just fired the ice hockey coach for not turning in some of the team who'd mooned out the bus windows on the way home from a game. Since he'd already given the players a stern dressing down, the coach believed that further punishment would be unjust. He was the son of one of my father's colleagues. The headmaster was the son of a friend of the bishop. What I recall best is my horrified amusement at my mother's shouting, I am not your good woman. Don't you good woman me. I'm thinking about bishops because the bishop of my diocese, Ely, is heading north this summer. He will be the new bishop of Lincoln. This means that the Diocese of Ely Vacancy and C Committee is moving into gear. This committee is made up of both lay and ordained people and will be preparing a description of the diocese and its mission and ministry, the difficulties, these are called challenges, it faces, and what kind of a bishop they hope we'll get. They will be deciding whether to express a view as to whether the next Bishop of Ely will ordain women. They will decide if they want to make this and the rest of the statement of needs public or keep it confidential. They will also be electing from among their number the diocesan representatives to the Crown Nominations Commission, which does the actual selecting of bishops. That committee is made up of six members of our Vacancy and C Committee, plus the Archbishops of Canterbury and York, six members of General Synod, three clergy and three lay people, the Prime Minister's Appointment Secretary, and the Archbishop's Appointment Secretary. In other words, two committees will choose our next bishop, one local and one national, but with representation from the local group. The composition of these committees has become noticeably more socially conservative over the past decade. At the same time, the culture wars being fought around the definition and purpose of marriage, the participation of gay couples in the life of the church, and the related question of relations between the sexes are bloodier than ever. We have bishops who have never ordained or received communion from a woman, and a bishop for whom it is an inescapable truth that women cannot lead or teach men. They're there for the people who can't accept a bishop who's liberal on these matters. There's no special bishop for those who are socially liberal, though. We have to take whomever we're sent. 
When you're part of a hierarchical church, you can't ignore your bishop even when you'd like to. History, canon law, liturgy, tradition, all the structures of the church bind us together, even or especially when they characterize themselves as helpless. Bishops are princes of the church. I arrived in my old diocese of Worcester 22 years ago, shortly after Philip Goodrich was succeeded by Peter Selby. My fellow curates and I had never known Philip, who was said to have had the habit of turning up on vicarage doorsteps at 8 a.m. saying, Good morning, I've come to have breakfast with you, and was greatly loved. Peter had been the suffragan Bishop of Kingston, where he was said to have blotted his copybook by receiving communion from a woman who'd been ordained abroad before the Church of England recognised women's ordination. Like most bishops in those days, he was married and had children and a golden retriever. Unlike the others, though, Peter was a prince bishop of the left, with intellect and a habit of speaking out. The then Bishop of London, Richard Charters, once described him to me as the conscience of the House of Bishops. He didn't mean it as a compliment, but it was one. At about the time we curates were ordained as deacons, the vicar of St. John's, Kidderminster, divorced his church from the diocese because the bishop refused to condemn same-sex relationships and the ordination of gay people. Dr. Selby and his supporters are clearly committed to the gay and lesbian agenda, he said in a press release. Meanwhile, all of us, even the conservative evangelical curate of Ipsley, wore stoles at our ordination to show that we were obedient to our bishop. I once turned up for a meeting with Peter Selby and swept through the gates of Hartlebury Castle in front of the Episcopal Rover. At the end of our conversation, the bishop looked at me from across his desk. There is something I must tell you that only I can tell you, Alice, he said. There was a pause. My heart sank. Oh God, I thought, what have I done now? Your passenger side brake light is out, he said. Boom. Who your bishop is matters. God, I hope we get a good one. Thank you so much for tuning into our Prospect Lives podcast. Listen out to hear more from our family of writers in September and tune in to our regular podcast, The Prospect Podcast, every Wednesday. If you enjoyed hearing from our wonderful lives colonists, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of Prospect from the newsstand now. Or go to our website where you can enjoy reading from Bill Keller, the former executive editor of the New York Times, writing about British prisons. Guy Standing, writing about the royal ownership of our shoreline. Hella Pick and many, many more. Goodbye, stay safe, and see you next time.